0: I'm really thankful to be here with everyone here today as we we kick off a a new series today. We kick off a new uh, conversation um, that feels both appropriate to this moment um, in terms of the world in the midst of an election season, in the midst of walking into this fall. But honestly, to me, this has felt like an important conversation um, for us, even as a church over the last six years. In many ways, this conversation is at the heart of um, why we exist. So... As we walk towards about a month, just under a month away from the election, um, it it still to this moment uh, breaks my brain a little bit that the biggest reason um, that we may have another four years of our current leadership is because of Christians. Uh, It breaks my brain in a lot of different ways. It breaks my brain because growing up as a white uh, middle-class guy, who is involved in churches, it, it breaks my brain because it feels like almost taboo to, to say that explicitly. Um, it breaks my brain to be here, to, to feel like we need to have a discussion where we're gonna be addressing the weight of all of this. But in many ways, it just breaks my brain because it is the exact opposite of my experience of Jesus. I think about having a conversation with a good friend of mine um, who grew up going to church um, but has not uh, stepped foot in a church or displayed any interest in being a person of faith um, for, for about 10 years now, and having a conversation with them right after the 2016 election, and him trying to process with me as we were looking at the data and recognizing that the biggest reason why um, we currently elected Trump was because of Christians. And they were saying to them that that even though they're not a part of church, the part of their identity that they still Embrace the part of who they are that was informed by their upbringing going to church Told were all of the parts that felt so wrong It was the parts of them growing up in church that told them that they should care about the poor and the outsiders The parts of them that told them that we admit faults and walk forward humbly to find life It was all of those parts that they still embraced about their Christian upbringing that were the parts that were most offended by that experience and they spoke to me at this point as how the election validated their choice to leave church 10 years ago. That the truth was that those pieces of who they believed and internalized about faith in Jesus felt not lived out in the experience of the Christians they saw around them. And I I think for us, this is important. It's important for many reasons for us to not be meek walking into a conversation like this to be honest and clear-eyed. It's the reason that a church like ours has chosen to call ourselves a Jesus-centered community rather than using the term that many places use, just saying we're a Christian church. And it is because what being a Christian is, what that looks like in our country, has in many ways just been co-opted by an ideology, an ideology that the religious right has embraced. And so for me, when I think about why it's important that we just address this and we're not, um, we're not falling short and having hard conversations as a community this next month, I think about it not because I think I'm gonna change the minds of people who call themselves Christians and convince them that they should change their political perspectives. That's not my goal at all. The reason I think it's important is twofold. One, so that the many, many people out there that would find hope and trust in Jesus. But don't because they believe that Jesus is owned by a political affiliation. They believe that Jesus is connected and affiliated with a version of life that offends them, offends their soul in a way. It doesn't speak to them. It's important for us to talk about this, to shift the narrative of who Jesus is and what a follower of Jesus would look like so that we can give hope and opportunity to those that would find Jesus in that context, but is blinded by the reality of our current country and what an American Christianity has said Jesus is. Secondly, I think it's really important that we have this conversation because I need Jesus right now. Lord, do I need Jesus right now. As we look at social media, as we look at the news, as we look at each passing story that comes to my awareness, as I interact with the world around me, as we walk forward into an election year with polarization, with misinformation, with uh, racial systematic racism uh, bubbling up in new ways and seeing people deny that and not step forward into reality, Lord, do I need Jesus right now. And it's important for us that we're talking about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus, the one that we follow, so that he can resource us in this moment to give us hope in the midst of so many reasons to lose hope, to give us strength in so many reasons that make us want to run away, to give us a picture of what a life looks like that is engaged in creating a different world. Because the truth is, the version of this world around me that I believe Jesus wants to create and I long to see is only going to be possible if I'm finding resources beyond myself. And for me, I find that in Jesus. And so that we don't fall into the trap that I've fallen into early in my life and that my friend fell into, which is the mess of what it looks like in terms of American Christianity claiming the ideology of Jesus. Will not make us steer away from finding the resources Jesus has for us. And so we're going to be launching a series today where we're just simply going to ask who is Jesus we're going to be looking into the different pieces of his life. Who is Jesus as we see as who he was born? Who is Jesus as we see through who what he said he was here for? Who is Jesus through his actions? Who is Jesus through his death and resurrection? And in this moment when we all feel so much emotion, who is Jesus as we see revealed through his anger? And so today I'm excited. I'm looking forward to having a conversation which I believe will fill me with hope, (laughs) will fill me with a picture of how on earth I navigate this next month, and hopefully it will do the same for you. And I'm going to pass it back to Vince to talk a little bit more about today's conversation.
1: Yeah, very good. Thank you, Kyle, for the preamble, and I I also have been feeling really excited about this, the the opportunity to shift a narrative, as you're saying, and then the also the opportunity for us personally to interact with this Jesus that you're talking about and not the one that is so often painted in uh, popular culture. So uh, for today, our first jumping off point uh, in, in responding to this who is Jesus question is the God who became human. That's the discussion we're going to have today. So the, the, the idea that like the, the, the picture of God that Jesus shows us grates against this idea of like a high and mighty, removed, distant God, but rather a God who comes very close and particularly comes very close to the most marginalized in the world, uh, as we'll talk about as we go forward today. Uh, Our our guide for today's discussion uh, is going to be one of our church's resident theologians, a seminary student, a worship leader, and also a brand new mother, um, Haley Larson. So hi, Haley, glad you're with us.
2: Good morning, resident theologian.
1: Oh, yeah. You're, you're, you're one of them. Uh, <laughs> and so as Haley guides us, uh, we want you to uh, please drop your comments, as we mentioned before, your questions in the chat as we go forward. And uh, we want that to help steer uh, what we end up talking about today. And Jen, our moderator, will be watching those to uh, to bring in as we go forward. So Haley, uh, as you take us in, what does God becoming human Uh, what theologians call the incarnation. What what does God becoming human show us about who Jesus is and where Jesus is positioned in 2020 America?
2: I'm excited for this conversation and really feeling that element of hope in this too. Um, The first topic that I wanted to narrow in on this morning is this idea of Jesus being fully divine and fully human. This is a classic definition of Jesus that we get from early church conversations trying to figure out how do we really describe who Jesus is um, with an idea of being fully divine and fully human at the same time. Um, but unfortunately in certain um, church circles in certain places, um, the divine aspect of Jesus is preached far louder than the humanity. Um, we see this language of power and conquering death and victory And it's really easy for those who are powerful, for those who hold religious power, uh, for white evangelicals in the US to cling to this powerful Jesus. The victory and conquering and power-centered language feels really right. And I think we definitely see this with Trump's rhetoric of power and victory. And then you can contrast this with the suffering of Jesus that's preached in a lot more marginalized contexts. The God of the oppressed, which we just spent on um, the summer talking about here, this Jesus that suffered, but beyond suffering, he was fully human. He rested and ate, probably got blisters from walking a really long way his sandals. Um, he experienced persecution and violence that led to death on a cross, a lynching. And because of that, because of a lived life, this God became human experience is preached more. It's more relatable. But this everyday humanist doesn't really fit in with American exceptionalism. And we see that in evangelical circles um, and white evangelicals end up worshiping Trump almost and just, justifying all of his glaring flaws because of the language he uses and his actions that center power. So I really think that this calls for a return to seeing God, not as just divine or not as just human, but a Jesus who is both.
0: Thank you so much, Haley. And just to call out my own internal biases and realities is when Vince says resident theologian, the first image I get is an old white dude in my brain. Like it's just, that's when we think the term resident theologian, do we, the the constructs of our reality make us think of old white dude, which is, um, I think Haley, you, you very much do fit that bill. Not of old white dude, but as a resident theologian. Um, you know, I think I was talking to Vince earlier, and we were talking about the conversation here is who is Jesus in terms of who he was born? Jesus, where did God choose to insert himself in humanity? And the term for this is often incarnation. And I told him that I actually dislike using the term incarnation because it removes us from the felt experience of it. It's almost like we get to be in our heads about this kind of concept of who God was in, step, in stepping in humanity, instead of saying God when he chose to step into humanity, became a helpless, chi- a helpless refugee child, a part of a religious minority, revealed himself to shepherds who were of no social status and to foreigners first. Where did he choose to insert himself into humanity? In the midst of poverty, in the midst of religious perse- persecution, even just the fact it's being a child dependent on others for his safety. And to me, when I think about who Jesus stepped in, I sometimes I think the term incarnation, God was incarnated as man, kind of removes us from having to interact with the humanity of the Jesus that we follow when they were human was a religious minority, a refugee in the space that he was born and revealed himself to those of other nations or of low social status. And I think to me, I know that's more long winded than incarnation, but it's almost important for me to say that so that I actually feel it. That it's not just like God was incarnated. So it's like, you know, God chose to be born the helpless child refugee who revealed himself to those without power and those of other nations. Like it's a much longer title, but I think that you're right. We are so infatuated with the power of Jesus. That we don't encounter the reality of who he lived as, the humanity of Jesus. And I think it's important in our language and the way that we talk about it that we, we acknowledge that reality and acknowledge the fact that if Jesus had come to humanity situated in a similar social place as, as he did in his world, he would not have come back as a white American. There's like zero percent chance that that would have lined up well. Um, but yet, the American church has embraced this rhetoric of power, this rhetoric of persecution, this rhetoric of the, they're coming out to get us in some kind of way. Who were the people in Jesus's world when he was born that had things to lose? Who were the ones that would have been grabbing to make the old world great again as it was? It would have been the Romans around them. It would not have been the Jewish people. You know what I mean? It would have been, uh, and I think it's incredibly important for us to think about if we're following Jesus, who did Jesus choose to be when he inserted himself into humanity? So I just deeply appreciate that point. Thank you so much, Haley.
2: Yeah, I think the, the closeness of God that you're talking about there is so important. Um, and in political messaging all the time, we see a lot of this just desperate clinging to power and control. So for people who fall into that category, a God who is powerful and controlling is really comfortable um, it's uncomfortable to think about a God that actually enters into human experience. Um, so I just, I think that that closeness that you're talking about and expanding our definition of what incarnation actually is, is really important.
1: You know, the, the other thing this, um, takes me to, so I'm, um, maybe it's obvious it's, I'm middle-class white guy who has never actually experienced, um, oppression um, in society. And so the, the the way that I can, if, if I'm able to um, sympathize or empathize at all with my brothers and sisters who are uh, of marginalized populations, it has to be through my own experience of suffering, what have been the hard things, because that would give me a, a glimpse of what it's like to live in uh, in different shoes. And so um, I, I what that makes me think about is, um, you know, we, we're, we're talking about power and how like, Oh, look, I can protect you. You know, I can, I can make you feel comfortable or, um, and that is a way that a lot of um, the, the, the like messaging of uh, uh, Trump and the Trump version of Christianity, but really it goes well beyond Trump. It's sort of the religious rights version of Christianity. Um, And I just, what I found is like thinking about my own suffering, the hardest things I've ever had to experience, losing people that I loved, losing uh, a brother, losing a mother, um, betrayals, uh, hard things, you know, just like, like thinking that I was going to um, have my life go one way and then my life going another way. Um, when I think about those things, I actually realize like, I would rather have the God of the oppressed because that God actually functionally is way more helpful to me. And in in a strange way, if we want to use this word, more powerful, like the God who became human is actually more powerful to meet me where I need to be met in the struggles of my life and the challenges of my life and the way that I experience hardship than a super powerful God who's removed from all of those things and is just, you know, up in the sky and distant and has no idea what human experience is like. Uh, and so f- for that, you know, like, I, I just think, part of the problem with, uh, with racial injustice, with, uh, with a patriarchal society, with a society that's homophobic and all of the, all of the different ways that we, that we stratify people in our country, part of the problem with that is that it makes those who are on top, white middle-class guys like me or white rich people on top, feel like you can go through life and never suffer. <laughs> and you actually like, when you do suffer, it's like an affront, like, ha, what? I can suffer? No, I am, you know, like I, I and, and you just like have no idea how to deal with anything because you think that you're immune to it. And I just, man, like as somebody who now has had hard things happen to me at this point in my life, I want the God of the oppressed, not the God who's powerful and removed. And I think
0: it's important that we <clears throat> talk about this because um, I think that the the machine of our country has created such a clear ownership of the name of Jesus. And it, and it dwells within a world that I want nothing to do with. Like I will flee so far away from. And it, so I think it's important that we have this conversation because it's important that those of us that are looking for this are looking for a living God who meets me and challenges me and grows me, but finds the states of American Christianity culturally and politically something I want to spend zero time in we need to know what's available. It's almost like being a Cubs fan and knowing that I don't just have to be a drunk frat boy to be a Cubs fan. I need to be able to see the dads with their sons that are not sitting in their bleachers. Like I have to see a version of something that looks appealing to me or else I'm gonna choose to be a White Sox fan because I don't want anything to do with those frat boys. And I think to me, that's important that we as pastors, we as a church are making sure that we understand that when we hear people yelling up voices, we, you know, a man who doesn't read the Bible Bible talking about how he's speaking for Christianity for us to say oh so right me I, I faithfully follow Jesus as best as I can in my life and I want nothing to do with that so if you are interested in Jesus and that also offends you there's space for you here you don't have to navigate that kind of garbage in order to follow Jesus too you don't have to be somebody you don't have to adapt um, a- anti-gay rhetoric you don't have to adopt um, anti-women rhetoric if you, those things offend you and Jesus has a place for you. And, and I'm one of those people that lives here right now. Come sit with me and my son watching this baseball game. Cause we're not all frat boys.
1: Haley, what, uh, what's, what's the next topic you want to bring us to as we think about the God become human and what that says about Jesus in 2020 America.
2: Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about embodiment when it comes to Jesus. And this is kind of just an extension of what we were just talking about as well. Um, that, Jesus would have been very aware of his embodied experience. Um, The whole life experience that Kyle ran through of not being someone who was born into a position of power, he would have been really aware of what his presence meant in certain spaces. And I think that that creates, or I know that that creates a level of empathy in understanding the lived experiences of other people who are being um, marginalized um, in society. But we can contrast that to the most powerful people in our nation and world. White, cisgendered, able-bodied straight males don't have to naturally be aware of their embodiment. They're not often forced to think about um, their embodied experience, the way that they take up space um, in certain places. It takes intention. And I don't think that Trump enters a room and is conscious of how he takes up space or what his presence there means. And when someone's power is not intentional about acknowledging how they center their own experience, it's really hard for them to empathetically think Mm. about anyone else's. And we see this, um, we see it in Trump, but we see it in other political leaders as well. Um, The response to Black Lives Matter and refusal to denounce white supremacy during the debates this week. um, It just, it shows such an inability to empathize with the lived embodied experiences of black communities in the US. His violent and military response to protests, his call to build a wall and inadequate responses to coronavirus, children in cages, being a sexual predator, the list goes on and on. Um, But all of this is evident of a leader who is clearly not self-aware surrounding their own embodiment and they can't see past their own experience. It creates um, this inability to look beyond What they've experienced in life. And this models for others that they don't have to be self-aware, gives them a free pass um, to religiously and politically center themselves and to not take seriously the abuse and marginalization of others. It really perpetuates hate and disconnection. So I think if we are going to be a Jesus-following community, we really need to be conscious of the way that we take up space. When white evangelicals or white Christians in the U.S. only act of concern for their individual bodies, there's a complete disregard for others who don't have the same access to power. So what does it mean to take seriously our own experiences and look beyond that? To really focus in on our own embodiment, um, the way that we are acting, the things that we are saying, but also look beyond ourselves and have empathy for other people.
1: Haley, can I, if I can pull that thread a little bit longer? Like, so what are um this one this one feels really practical? Like, what is embodiment for us right now as uh, people who are trying to shift the narrative about Jesus, people who as has Kyle said desperately need the Jesus that we're talking about here? Um, what does it look like to um and maybe maybe you can break this down in terms of like our, like the different uh groups, the different um um uh, d- we all kind of uh, carry a different like intersection of uh, being a person who is of privilege or of marginalized or a little bit of both. Like, what does it look like to be em- to to live out embodiment right now?
2: Yeah, um, I mean it's very action based. I don't think that you sit and just have a conversation of embodiment that goes against uh, the very nature of it. That you are physically experiencing um, the world and aware of yourself. Um, for me, in this season, it means voting and voting with others in mind um, to not only consider ourselves. And this is where we get into intersectionality too. Um, I grew up in a setting where I I can remember concrete times and places of saying like, oh, I'm just not into politics. I'm not political. And a lot of that was rooted in this idea that just Jesus isn't political. We shouldn't um, bring that sense of just wanting to be a separation
1: of of church and state right yeah
2: yeah but it's more so i don't it can go either way of how you try to incorporate that but for me um it's meant really leaning in to say no jesus was active in the world and engaged um and cared beyond himself so i think there really is a call to vote that if i was only voting um for people and policies that affected me as a white woman Um, It would look very different from people coming from different communities voting only um, for things that concern to themselves if I'm voting to preserve power in white spaces that looks really different than those who are giving up um, or trying to work beyond their privilege to restore power um, to redistribute power in different spaces. Um, So I really think that this is very action based and if you're not registered to vote please make sure you are ASAP. Mm-hmm.
0: You know I just I really appreciate that idea that this is an action-based thing and that um you know the one thing that has happened to me several times over the last four months with uh people I work with coworkers of color is this this notion that <clears throat> in our workplaces it's almost and even as school is starting right now um I, I have uh this friend who talks about how it's almost like the world has decided that we're it's time to get back to like productivity and efficiency and the moment of uh, experiencing and acknowledging the trauma of the pandemic and the moment of experiencing and acknowledging the trauma of uh, all of the violence done to black bodies this last summer. um like we we acknowledge that now, and it's time to go back to work again. And um talking about um how how she taught me, about pausing before we start work to acknowledge that some of us may actually have still be experiencing that trauma and that when there's white dudes like me or white people in leadership, um, there's people of privilege and leadership where the the cost of the pandemic is lower for them. Those where you see um, a black body have violence done upon it. You don't see your own image or your child's image or your father's image. That trauma leaves you faster. And so taking a moment of, of, of realizing the embodiment of our different experiences and just allowing space that other people, particularly in this moment, may be experiencing the current reality and need space to do that. And before we move into a sense of productivity, before we move back into a sense of, well, we just got to get on with life, acknowledging that the embodied experience of what's going on right now is not all the same and giving space for people to name and acknowledge those things. Even in settings where historically we have not given permission for people to name and acknowledge what's going on with them, like in workplaces. Um, And I actually firmly believe if we do that, we'll actually have better productivity, more efficiency in the end, if you're a capitalist at heart and you need to hear that. Um, But other than that, I think in general, as a human, that that, that's actually a more important space for us to do.
1: That's good. So if I can, if I can kind of make that a, a practical tip, I think that was really helpful, Kyle. One way to, to do what uh, Haley was talking about, uh, follow the cue of Jesus in in, in embodiment, is whenever you're entering a space, um, you know, right now, a lot of that's virtual, right? Like we're entering our workspace by like logging on uh, or something like that. But whenever we're entering a space to take a moment and, you know, like, I mean, maybe we have to like work this into our life. Like we set a reminder on our phone that 9 a.m. when I clock in, I'm actually like stopping to pause and considering what sort of space am I taking up in this, in this place? And who might be taking up a different space or who might be feeling differently or responding differently to the events of yesterday or the events that, you know, that, that have just unfolded. Um, I think that, that, that that's really useful that we kind of take those moments of moving across a threshold to a new space to reflect for a moment about what space we take up and how other people might be taking up uh, a space differently.
2: Yeah, and I think um, self-awareness is a launching point that if we actually pause, which is so counter the pace of life often, but if we pause um, and are able to be self-aware and understand how we are entering into spaces, um, it gives us more more ground and more just of this mindful um, place to be really curious about how others might be feeling. I think that curiosity comes from really being aware of ourselves. And that curiosity leads to empathy um, and leads to action and entering into spaces where um, we can actually partner with other people and be um, more aware of their experience because we're aware of ours.
1: I love the word curiosity. I just think that is so dead on in terms of what does. Um, the God who becomes human teach us about God and then about like what it means to be in relationship with that God. There's curiosity there, you know, this is, this is the God who, who, who in, in showing love the first thing that must be done is to get entirely curious by going and living among. And that is what it means to save us. That is what it means to lead us and guide us and change us and shape us and love us. Uh, It means going and being among Um, And and that requires curiosity. You cannot know everything ahead of time and, and then end up doing that.
0: And just to say, self awareness and curiosity is not an equal playing field. The more power you have, the less your natural lived life has forced you into self awareness. Mm-hmm. And so, I do think for people like me, it is a greater invitation towards more work. It is just more work because the world around me does not force me to encounter. And the the idea that we live in a world right now where being a white man is you know has new difficulties is just it's just not true. I, I live the experience, and I still get benefits of the. Every corner and every turn of the day. And so trying to recognize what that means in the spaces I'm walking into is a greater ask on those of us with power and privilege because of the way that society works. And it's actually one of the moments why it's so important. One of the things that's so important about why Jesus didn't enter into that that he entered into that place of lowness so that he could empathize, stand with, and be with those of us who are forced into self-awareness by systemic realities. That it's, you know, for me, it is a real, it's a, I have to really work at understanding what it's like to not be given the benefit of the doubt all the time, but Jesus lived that life. And so he's able to walk into it and a stand with those that are forced into it, but also help me see it better as somebody who's trying to pursue and see Jesus, he gets to reveal himself, which in terms helps me do that work of self-awareness that my identity so often makes hard to do.
1: Well, Haley, is there any other pieces that you wanted to uh, follow us uh, through on? And then also I'll, I'll mention Jen, if there's anything going on in the comments, we'll, we'll, we'll bring you in here, but I wanted to give Haley one last chance to bring anything else to the table here, just to, uh, to lay it out for us, Haley.
2: Yeah, the, the last thing that I wanted to bring in here um, is actually repentance, and this yeah. word I feel like has a really strong reaction in people um, when you hear it, um, but in in Matthew 3 in the gospel part of the New Testament where we're really talking about Jesus' lived life as he's entering into the world. Um, in the very beginnings so of Matthew three, there's this figure, John the Baptist, and he's announcing Jesus's mission in the world. Um, and part of that is saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And in non-religious settings, I think the word repentance sounds really judgmental. And it's because in hyper-religious settings, there's an obsession with repentance and it's really individualized and it's driven by shame. But when we actually look into what repentance is, it's this action of turning and truly looking at ourselves, and it involves changing our minds. Repentance is an invitation, and it should be unifying and community-building, not divisive. So I think that there really is, um, as we're thinking about what does it mean to follow Jesus in this season, I think that there's an invitation to normalize repentance and normalize changing our minds.
1: Changing our minds, yeah.
2: Yeah. It's normalizing this idea that just because we were one way before or thought one way before, it doesn't mean that we can't turn, be more aware, look in the mirror and see who we are um, and go forward in a new direction. And then actually we can and should be doing that, that as we encounter more of the world, especially for those of us who are coming from a place of privilege, as we're creating new relationships and learning more, um, how we've... Benefited from systems that are built on privilege. We should be changing our minds Um, And we should be drawn into this way of following Jesus that is more loving and more justice-driven and more self-aware
1: I mean beyond even the 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 matters that we're kind of uh, focused on which is how do we engage in our wider world? um anybody who's been in any sort of long-term relationship, I think recognizes like changing your mind is required to to move forward, to grow as a human being, to grow as a unit in a relationship. I mean, changing your mind is so so, like foundational. And yet for some reason, when we bring this into the public sphere, when we bring this into the political sphere, for some reason, the moment you change your mind, you're like, there's all of these like bad words in political world, like you're a flip-flopper. And that's obviously a terrible thing. And, uh, and I just, I feel like, man, uh, even, even, even just hearing this, like, I mentioned to you, uh, Haley, earlier this week, I was like, maybe, maybe the most like significant, uh, like, juxtaposition between Jesus and Trump is the is the idea of repentance, changing your mind, you know, like that, that, that is the that, that's maybe like the most anti Trump thing in the life of Jesus.
2: Yeah, and I think it leads to just bulldozing ahead, clinging to your own original values and perception of the world. Um, And it comes across as just very out of touch with the lived experience of others in this country. Um, When there's a refusal to change your mind, you just end up completely, um, yeah, bulldozing. That word just keeps coming back to me. But that's just how I picture this, like, inability to change your mind, to accept that what you had before, and what maybe was given to you, and your embodied, um, and just the way the internalized narrative that you've experienced—that maybe that needs some adjusting. Actually, it should, and it's necessary to adjust and continually change our minds and repent. I
0: think it's it's tied to this reality that you know Trump, in a lot of ways, is is not the the. Uh, came out of nowhere is, is a symptom of a long-standing truth, and the reality is, um, the American church has popularized refusal to change your mind long before mm. Trump did. Mm. And actually, I think that's one of the reasons why he appeals is he's like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna apologize. This is who I am. I'm not gonna say sorry when I've done wrong. And the truth is, like you know, I was I was looking through videos um, to do with our kids' church yesterday. And it was like it is a painful process, I will tell you right now, because we don't we don't create our videos, I get them from all over the world. It was a painful process because one of the most popular things that happens with them is some version of you are credited as good because you were willing to stand up and hold on to your truth, even when the world was wanting to convince you to change, that the devil's constantly after you, trying to lure you into darkness. And so for me, um, this is a sense of like, I recognize in growing up that often critical thinking and my experience at faith or at warring with each other. And there was a sense of like asking hard questions, wondering, is that really true? Was actually a sense of a lack of faith And that if I have a lack of faith, maybe my salvation's at risk or growing up in a charismatic setting where we believe God heals and speaks to us. My lack of faith was tied to a lack of me sealing, healing, or God speaking in my own life. And so we circumvent the part of us that says maybe I'm wrong. And instead, we ask each other towards conformity, towards a cultural norm, and then call that faithfulness. And so to me, that is how the evangelical right has, has grown and thrived. And the truth is, the world we live in right now, I mean, I look at generations of pastors in many ways at fault for for telling people that asking hard questions and changing your mind is falling prey to the devil, because the truth is the Jesus that we see invites us to constantly be aware that we don't see the full picture, constantly aware of how small we are, constantly aware that we have it wrong, and it's actually in our smallness, in our uncertainty, that we find the God of the universe. And so I think to me, this is like Trump is, is, a, is a product of what we have created, and not just as a country, but specifically the Christian American culture kind of laid the land bare that we created a false persecution there a complex, told people to stop asking questions, and he stepped in and knew exactly what to do in that place.
2: Well, Um, There's this quote from Sue Monk Kidd that says, always we are waking up and waking up some more. Um, And that's really something that I've gone to in a season where people want to either appear like they are standing firm in their traditional values or like they are woke, that there needs to be this process of just always waking up and waking up some more. Um, And that for me, creates actually a really hopeful invitation into changing our minds and into repentance.
1: That's really good. That's really good. My mind is going in lots of different places here, but I'm, I'm going to try to save some of it because we've uh, we're, we're going to be talking about this all month uh, folks. I mean, this is our new series. Uh, so at this point, because we're running low on time, I want to invite Jen in if there's anything going on in our chat that it would, that you feel uh, Jen would be helpful to, to kind of swing toward Haley.
3: Oh, definitely. Um, just lots of, lots of good stuff here. Um, uh, just scrolling up because uh, Brett said something really great. Um, uh, the idea of like making God into our image is a serious thing to consider. A God on my side per se against everyone else. We hear this in white evangelicals who say, if you don't vote for Trump, you can't be a Christian. Mm. Because they see him in their image. Therefore, if you are not voting for Trump, you are rejecting their image. And then I think we also have to have caution for that on our side too, that we aren't molding God into what, you know, it's that we're not molding God either. It's like, I think what we've been saying, uh, this looking outward, we're constantly looking outward and challenging and we're never too sure, right? It's not, it's not believing like in the, it's a death to ego and death to self a little bit and um, not being so sure and always looking to the world and uh, others' experiences and being open to that rather than being so steadfast and like 100% in what we believe.
2: Yeah, there's, I feel so funny because I just brought in a quote, but another author that I really love, um, Anne Lamott, she writes that, you know, you've created God in your own image when he hates all the same people you do. Um, and I feel like that that is just a really honest check-in point. Like, how how am I wanting to um, really live into a justice-oriented, kingdom-focused way of being? And um, how am I seeing some people as standing in the way of that? And that the thoughts and narratives that are driving their actions, like, those need to be changed. Like, God is not um, a God that just, like, sits by and lets – injustice be okay. And at the same time, like, wow, am I just turning all my own views and all my own really like pent up frustrated hatred of others. Is that what I'm putting on to God? Um, so I think that that's a really important thing to remember and to consider.
1: Mm, that is really good. And I do think that um, it's maybe a preview for another conversation that I do think will be really important for us to have during this month is Um, like how political should we be is, uh, is a really important question. And there's lots of different, um, there's lots of different factors that are involved here. And certainly, um, I think we, we will get to that, but I do want to just say, like, I think that's a really important question and, and we, and we will address it at this point, just because we're, we're low on time. Can I ask for any final takeaways, uh, Haley from you and then, uh, Kyle, or, or if, if I have any final takeaways at the end, uh, we'll pass those on as well, but Haley final takeaways
2: um so i was revisiting the prayer that i brought in last week um from this account black liturgies um with cole arthur riley on instagram and some of her body of work and writing and there's this line in it that initially i was really just struggling with because she uses really harsh language and it's something along the lines of when we when we're called to rest May those who are kind of against you, Jesus, may they be um, writhing and like unable to sleep and unable to rest because of the way that they claim you as, as like this vision of who you are, Jesus. And it just wasn't sitting well with me, but I thought about it more. And it's, yes, it's this invitation to say, this Jesus, this God who became human needs to be differentiated from the Jesus that people are claiming that's fueled by hate. Um, that we don't get to have a Jesus who sits in both places. And this goes back to the idea, Vince, that you were talking about, that we need a God of the oppressed. Uh, We need a God who is with those who are being oppressed and marginalized, Um, that there does need to be this separation of a Jesus of love and humility and humanity and a Jesus of hate um, who is not in in touch with who is not engaged with um, the lived experience of people. That it's really important. I think that this isn't necess- this isn't fitting Jesus into um, a two-party system. It's not trying to make Jesus liberal or conservative. It's saying how is there um, how is there a God of hate that's being preached, and how am I actually resting with the Jesus of love and inclusion?
1: Mm. Amen. Amen. Kyle, any, any final takeaways before we close here?
0: um, Just, you know, I think on a practical side for me, so watching the debate on Tuesday, I felt like just terrible. It was like the most just heart sinking. Like I thought my heart had already sunk in the world before, um, but just feeling like further loss of hope. And so afterwards I had to, I'd like had to do some prayer. I had to do some, some stuff to work through that. And it was one of those moments that I again felt like so this is why I need Jesus right now because I have my my broken self wants to give up hope for the world right now and fall into apathy um, because I'm a white guy and I can do that and um, wanting to sit there and inviting Jesus just to be with me because. And there was a sense of, uh, I wasn't even asking for, I just, I, was I just did this practice where I sit, and I just try to sit in the presence of God and let rather than sitting in the presence of the vial that I just saw sit in the presence of what is good and what is, is, is feeding my soul. And it was, it was incredibly helpful and healing process for me um, to step through here and say that there is hope, and that this is that um, the things that I see before me are, are not the only reality, and that there is a God who actually lived out people spreading misinformation about Him, people treating Him with violence. Like He, He is not unfamiliar to the ickiness of the human uh, condition, um, and just sitting there in the presence of this person who is both fully human so knows what it's like, but also fully divine and able to, to sit there with love and goodness and peace and kindness and justice. And just sitting there with them, it was an incredibly healing process for me that I uh, I had to go through. Um, and so I'll just leave that with you in case that that seems helpful to you. Is just trying to sit in the presence of this, this God that is both human and divine lived.
1: Very good, very good. Well, Haley, can we ask you to pray for us and just kind of let us marinate in all that we've thought about, but also, Maybe to react to whatever feelings we're having uh, as as we've been engaging. Would you pray for us? Yeah, definitely.
2: <sighs> Healer God, help um, help us as we are just trying to rest in you while pursuing justice and the kingdom. God, may hope be a sustaining force as we are following you. Jesus, as we are just deeper in relationship with you, may that lead us to be more self-aware, more loving, more justice-driven. Would you just invite us into this space, um, the space of being humble, the space of coming to recognize that you hold power in ways that we can't and we shouldn't. God, may we be led into action, into concrete ways of recognizing the power that we hold, in recognizing your action in the world and aligning ourselves with that. We ask that we would be able to hold your vision and step into it boldly. We love you and we praise you for all that you are.